This podcast contains mature content, including, but not limited to, profanity, sex, nudity, wait, what? And the occasional spoilers. Oh, God. I'm the destroyer of all that is good and holy, and I'm going to melt your queer insides, Miss Becky. <laughs> Try me. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> All right, Joe, what are we discussing this week? We have arrived, finally. Not only have we been wanting to cover this book, but this is our final episode of the season. I know. It's our final book. How wild is that? I'm stoked and also kind of in awe. I can't believe we've done 10 full episodes already. I know. Well, today is going to be great. We're going to go out with a bang. We are talking about The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune. I love T.J. Klune. I know you love T.J. Klune. Together, we love T.J. Klune. And we're just in it together. (laughs) (laughs) We're kind of nerdy when it comes to TJ. Kind of. I, you know, I think I told you this last time, but I think this year alone, I've read 12 or 13 of his 20 some books that he's written. I'm up to five. Okay. I mean, for me, that's, that's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I've also gone back and purchased some of his out of print books in audio form to listen to something that might not be as popular right? far before, you know, House in the Cerulean Sea really put him on people's radars and things like that. But he's got a lot of amazing stories. He really spreads out over the genres. Okay, so you've read a lot of his stuff. Is there a lot more fantasy? Or is there, I thought it was more romance, but I'm guessing there's fantasy in there too. Well, all of his books focus on queer people of all walks of life right. and very diverse. Um, he's got a couple of different series that are fantasy. He says that fantasy is really where he likes to live creatively, and that's his forte. One of our favorites of TJ's is The Extraordinaries, mm-hmm. and that's narrated by the wonderful Michael Leslie. Michael Leslie, Aha, yeah. Put your shot glasses down. It was not <laughs> the other one. So this one is narrated by the wonderful Daniel Henning. He's wonderful. I am continually floored it's not hard to tell who's talking and there's a lot of characters there are so many characters and especially when it comes to the kids Mm, he has given a personality to every single one of those kids through the voices that he's done for them it's just amazing very very well done So The House in the Cerulean Sea is the story of Linus Baker, who is a social worker for this soul-crushing organization called Dykeme. Mm -hmm. It stands for the Department in Charge of Magical Youth. What a drag. Right. (laughs) Everything about this job sounds as depressing as the title. Mm Mm-hmm. Tiny, tiny workspace, terrible hours, no benefits. Like, he got almost killed on a job once, and all he got was two days off. Right. He has a a mouse pad on his desk of a beach, and it says, don't you wish you were here? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I do very much. (laughs) So Linus's job is to go into homes where the magical youth are staying and check the living situations and check in after incidents. He's a caseworker, Mm -hmm. just making sure that everything is good and up to date. One day, he gets called into the offices of... Extremely upper management. How fantastic is that name? We've (laughs) all worked in an organization with an extremely Extremely upper upper management. management, I know. They are sending him out on this classified level four case. (laughs) Classified level three is the one where he almost died on assignment. So Uh he's very thrilled (laughs) Mm -hmm. about this. But he will be going to a place called Marcius Island. And he will be there for a full month to examine this house of magical children run by a caretaker named Arthur Parnassus. Arthur Parnassus. He packs up his extremely grumpy little cat. Calliope. Calliope. <laughs> and they take a trudge all the way out to Marcius Island. They go through buses, trains, uh-huh. rain, and then he finally lands on this island. And, and it's- he has to take a ferry over there. So he's on Marcius Island and he gets there and he starts to read the file of the children that he's going to meet. And the first one he pulls out is a child named Lucy. 
Lucifer, nicknamed Lucy. He is the son of the devil. <laughs> he is the Antichrist. He is, quote unquote, <laughs> the Antichrist. This knocks Linus flat out. Right. And he is on the pavement when his ride arrives. He's picked up by the island sprite, Zoe Chapelwhite. Zoe Chapelwhite. She's fabulous. Isn't she great? Mm-hmm. I really Love like her. Zoe. She takes him to the orphanage. And uh, he gets there and he starts to meet the children. And then he meets Arthur. And over the course of the month that he is there, it's really kind of the story of how they really form a bond together. Mm -hmm. Themes of chosen family abound with this story. And it's how he really comes to see these children. You know, the world outside sees them as monsters. Mm Mm-hmm. They are very clearly labeled, and he comes to see them for who they are inside, their hopes, their dreams, in conjunction with their abilities and their quirks and Mm -hmm. all of the things. And it's really such a whimsical, beautiful story of a lonely, lost man finding a home Mm -hmm. and finding a family and finding love in many different forms. And it's just absolutely beautiful. He finds himself too. He becomes this massively protective man with absolutely no patience for intolerance. Absolutely. I was astounded to see the turnaround that this character goes Mm -hmm. through. I love it so, so very much. Yeah, it's almost like he has sudden parental instincts. Right. And he has such an urge to defend and protect these children. It's just incredible. The fear flies out through the window whenever he's met with someone confronting the children or Arthur. It's all just wonderful. It's so good. <laughs> so I know that you're not a great fan of what I'm going to bring up. Well, and I think that it's important to address it. We are going to come at this from the standpoint of, hi, I'm white. <laughs> yes. This is not... Okay. <laughs> I don't even... Th- There's a controversy that surrounds this book that really needs to be addressed if you're if you're talking positively about House in the Cerulean Sea. Mm-hmm. You can't leave this off the table. Right. It, I mean, it would be an easy episode to just end here. Absolutely. But that's not our job. Mm-mm. TJ has brought it up that he had a story in his mind of a school of magical children, but he couldn't quite bring it together for a location or why they were there until he read a story about indigenous children in Canada Mm -hmm. that were pulled from their homes and sent to a boarding school. They call it the 60s scoop. The 60s Mm -hmm. scoop. He has addressed this with honesty. Mm -hmm. Because the issue that people take with this is that he's profiting off of the trauma that these indigenous children Mm -hmm. have gone through. And it's really interesting because there are two schools of thought, even within the indigenous community, on this particular book. Right. So the issue gets pretty fuzzy. Again, this is where I I have no place to speak. This isn't my Mm. work, and it's also not my culture. Like TJ said, he wanted this to always come from a place of love and hope. Mm -hmm. And this was never intended to be a whitewash. He wanted to show a group of children who were experiencing prejudice and being in a place where they could live with one another, but still not be in their natural environment. As we know, over the last few months in 2021, Mm -hmm. we have come to the unfortunate discovery of the horrors of the indigenous schools Mm -hmm. and the trauma associated with that is beyond any of my understanding. All of that being brought to light all at once so suddenly. I I didn't know. No. You know? Yeah. It's been kind of a reckoning recently Mm -hmm. with some of that. But I will say that when this has been brought up, when the the topic of whitewashing other indigenous history and not leaving that story to be told by an indigenous author, TJ has been very tender with the topic mm-hmm. and very honest in saying that he was not coming from a place of an intended offense. And he realizes that he writes from a place of privilege yes. as well. Yes. It's something that he acknowledges. 
I'm going to put a link in our bio to an article that will kind of give you a little bit more understanding on his thought process and how the writing and the story came about, Mm -hmm. as well as to more information about the indigenous children that were recently discovered. We understand that this can be a topic that can bring up a lot of trauma for people and and division absolutely and while this book is magic it is not without its faults and you know it's just like anything these days and anyone Mm -hmm. i am pure magic (laughs) i have a couple faults (laughs) (laughs) but take it with the awareness that the author understands and is aware i leave it to you all to make the final judgment for yourself um honor and respect and all of the tenderness is due towards the indigenous community Mm -hmm. on this. So I'm going to stop there. Just because uh, we love TJ Klune and both of us happen to love this particular book doesn't mean that um, the feelings and opinions of the indigenous community are invalid by any way. Those are important. Mm -hmm. Um, They belong at the table. And it it's now something that just needs to be a part of the conversation when you're talking about this book. So absolutely. So we will have those um, articles linked in our bio for you all. When people talk to me about House in the Cerulean Sea, I always like to say it reminds me of a combination of Joe versus the volcano meets Miss Peregrine's home for peculiar children. Right. Because you were talking about his job in the beginning. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Joe versus the volcano, but that's such a thing. It's like you see him trudging with all of these other people up to this factory. And they're all, you know, in grays and browns and everyone's just miserable. And he steps in a puddle and the office he works in is like fluorescent. (laughs) lights and it's just miserable and that's what I think of kind of when I think of Linus and his job and see I thought of office space just constant TPS reports you have the secretary in the Uh background going just a moment (laughs) punch that bitch in the face (laughs) it is the worst office setting ever and it is perfectly described he says there are so many desks that they've labeled the rows in alphabetical order oh i know and they're all smushed so closely together that with his large hips he's knocking things off and they're not allowed to have like any kind of accoutrement Mm -hmm. on their desk yeah it is soul crushing and he's been there for like 17 years yes and not one promotion not one promotion not one vacation well, he got two days off after almost being killed. Well, <laughs> but that's it. He hasn't gone anywhere, that's for sure. Right? My favorite things about the book are the children. Can we can we talk about those precious little angel nuggets? Absolutely. Who are we starting with? <laughs> well, we can start with who the book started with. Let's talk about Talia. There are very few characters that I really relate to so much as Talia. <laughs> little squat, round, garden gnome. Mm-hmm. Gee, you're so round, Mr. Baker. <laughs> I'm round two. two. (laughs) We're right there with you, Talia. Oh, yes. Very much in shape. Right. It is a shape. (laughs) So Talia is the only known female garden gnome in existence. The only one. Yes. The only one. And that is why she's at Marcy's Island. And what is she, like 260 years old or something? Yes, but it's the emotional equivalent of, they said, a five-year-old. Uh-huh, because you don't mature until you're like 500 or something. Right. Right. So she's always like, well, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to bash you on the head with my shovel. <laughs> and Linus is like, that's sweet. Go sit down. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when in our very first episode, Red, White, and Royal Blue, we were talking about the brilliant, humorous nuggets of dialogue right. that they say. It's sort of that way with this book as well. Oh, absolutely. Things that come out of the children's mouths just have you dying of laughter. They do. It is 100% dark humor at its <laughs> best. But it's like the most violently threatening book I've ever read. But it's just so fucking adorable. Right. Uh-huh. Oh my God, I love it. So Talia is very, very, very proud of her garden. She is a master gardener. Oh, yes. Phenomenal. Her weapon of choice is a garden spade. (laughs) So anytime she talks about attackers or anyone unwanted, she's always talking about braining them with her shovels or her garden spades. Nothing like getting brained by Talia. 
I don't know how she'd do that, though, because she's like three foot tall right. <laughs> or two foot tall at the She'll most. She'll pet cemetery their ankles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Talia is the feistiest little unrelenting nugget mm-hmm. of this is what I want. And this is the only thing I'm going to accept. Yes. And I fucking love her. Love it. So Talia is actually really good friends with Lucy. Lucy. There's a point where they go into town and Talia wants some tools for her garden. Yeah. And Arthur has everybody split up. And of course, he assigned Talia and Lucy to Mr. Baker. This was your idea. Have fun. Enjoy. (laughs) You wanted to go out. Here's the Antichrist. Here you go. They go into the hardware store and... Lucy starts talking about, like, do you think this town has a cemetery? Talia's like, ooh, I could dig up dead bodies with my new spade. <laughs> and he's like, oh, my God, we're not going to the cemetery. And you're not digging up dead people. <laughs> Those two together are one of my favorite Gold. combinations. Gold. And they have each other's back, and they call each other brother and sister. I just, oh, I love this, too. Lucy is the son of the devil. Mm-hmm. We do not know who his mother is. She says she's likely deceased. Well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> he has ended up in the care of Arthur Parnassus, and he has powers that he can't quite control, right. and Arthur works with him every day to find control. Mm-hmm. And there are times where Lucy has nightmares, where awful things take place in his mind in these mm-hmm. dreams, and things will start to manifest, like Linus is awakened because his bed is floating in the air. Yeah. And of course, all the children know Lucy's having a bad dream. Let's all get together. Linus comes over, and they explain to him what's going on, and he goes upstairs, and he sees Arthur finally finally able to wake Lucy. He is scared out of his mind and he feels guilty because he knows what happens when he has these dreams and how they affect brothers and sister and uh, the house and all of the things. And and it's just really, really interesting to see such vulnerability in a character that is the six-year-old son of the devil and always talking about killing and maiming and, and, and destroying and everything. And that moment of vulnerability, I think, is very powerful. I love that Arthur was there to talk him through it. Arthur is such a tender parent and he keeps reciting to him. He says, remember who you are. This is not who you are. You are not what you are seeing. You are not what you're experiencing right now. You are a good person. Yes. And I love parents that TJ writes. Mm -hmm. He's going to make a fantastic parent one day. If that's what he wants. He's got it. He knows what he's doing. Oh, what a sweet thought. Daddy TJ. Daddy TJ. (laughs) Doesn't he call himself the The romance? The book daddy. Okay. So he's halfway there. Yeah. There you go. When Lucy wakes up from his night terrors, he's always very grateful for the home and the family. And Mm -hmm. he's like, I I didn't mean to. I hope I didn't hurt anyone. I never would. Just an unconscious thing that has happened. You don't ever want it to be something that he fears before. And one of the things that I thought was really great about Arthur is that he has to devote so much of his time to Lucy, yet the other children don't feel neglected by him, Mm -hmm. even though he has to devote so much attention to Lucy. None of them feel neglected by him. In fact, they look to him as a father figure just as much as Lucy does. They really help with Lucy a lot, too, just by Mm -hmm. creating a very tight-knit family. They're all able to come together as a unit and handle it together. Mm -hmm. And I just... (laughs) I know. Another character that we meet very early on, right after Talia, is Sal. Yes. Now, Sal is a shifter. Yes. He is a very large boy. Mm Mm-hmm. And he always looks like he's trying to make himself smaller than he is. Linus, upon meeting Sal for the first time, spooks him. He shifts into this small little Pomeranian puppy. (laughs) It goes from this large teenage boy down to a little bitty Pomeranian anytime he gets scared. Yeah. Oh, he's the most timid spirit, too. I love him. He is 13 years old. Mm Mm-hmm. He has only been there for three months. He's their newest kiddo in the family. And that three months is the longest he's been anywhere. Yes. Over the last six years, he has been in 12 different placements. Poor Sal. I know. So when you see Sal throughout the book, you see him constantly afraid of doing something or saying something wrong and getting the whole place shut down or Mm -hmm. getting removed. The phrase, afraid of your own shadow, would really apply 
to yeah. Sal. And I love the voice that Daniel gives Sal in his performance. It's like, oh, I like your cat. Do you think she likes me too? <laughs> I'm going to disagree. Ugh. I think that Sal was the one that I disliked the most with the narration. It felt like he was intellectually challenged at times. I get that. Sal is one of the most brilliant people there. No, I think you're exactly right. I can see how that particular voice might imply something. And mm -hmm. I don't think that that was the intent because he is incredibly intelligent. Mm -hmm. One of the things that he absolutely loves to do is to write on his typewriter. I love Sal. And they have a time where they are called on to express themselves. Mm -hmm. And each one of them will get up and they will sing a song or tell a story or something expressive. Linus is there and he's watching the kids. Sal gets up and the most beautiful thing comes out of his mouth. I am but paper, brittle and thin. I am held up to the sun and it shines right through me. I get written on and I can never be used again. These scratches are a history. They tell a story. They tell things for others to read, but they only see the words and not what the words are written upon. I am but paper, and though there are many like me, none are exactly the same. I am parched parchment. I have lines. I have holes. Get me wet and I melt. Light me on fire and I burn. Take me in hardened hands and I crumple. I tear. I am but paper, brittle and thin. Shut up. No. <laughs> Listening to that, this last time, my whole body felt chills. It's so beautiful, and it's such a vulnerable description of who he is on the inside. I would think that that is one of the most powerful moments of the entire book. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so intuitive, and it really speaks to who Sal is. You don't see a whole bunch of Sal in the book. He's not one of the main, main characters. No. So this glimpse of getting to see that he's had such a traumatic past, but he can turn it into something so profound mm -hmm. makes you know that even though he's not the star player, he could have his own series. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I'm a huge fan of Sal. I love, I love Sal. I love these children. I love Chauncey. Oh, <laughs> so our next one that we're going to discuss is Chauncey. Chauncey. <laughs> Chauncey is a three-year-old amorphous green blob who is thought to be a cross between a sea cucumber and a jellyfish of some descent. Of some variety. <laughs> he doesn't know what he is. No one knows. He's the first of their kind. He has been considered a monster like because he is what children would expect to come out from underneath their bed at night. And he has been known to hide under beds. But you know why? He just wants to help you unpack. Exactly, because Chauncey's greatest dream is to become a bellhop. A green amorphous bellhop. Bellhop. And so when Linus arrives at the island, he goes into his room and he finds that all of his suitcases have been unpacked. Everything is already put away. And then he shows up expecting a tip. <laughs> I mean... There is nothing to dislike about Chauncey. No, not a thing. I don't know where he came from in TJ's mind. Right? But <laughs> perfection. Oh my God, right. At one point, he pays someone a compliment and Linus is like, put your hand away. You don't get a tip for saying something nice. <laughs> He's like, oh. oh. <laughs> I love it at the end where they're about to cross the channel and he's like, are we really going to sink and die in the ocean? That would be weird. And this is the humor that this book is. It's just constantly like, I might burn you with my thoughts, or we'll sink and die in the ocean, or I'll bring you with my garden spade. Like, Really? <laughs> but it's offset by this gorgeous spirit of childhood and I know. wonder. Ugh. Chauncey is just wonderful. There is not a bone in his body and if there were <laughs> none of them would be mean or cruel there's not a cruel blob in his blob. blobby <laughs> blobby <laughs> i don't know i love him i love him too oh so wonderful the next one i want to talk about is fee i love little fee little fee of all of the students there she's the one that gets the least amount mm -hmm. of screen time or page time or however we're going to say it she is a garden sprite. So she's a younger version, essentially, of 
Zoe Chapelwhite. That's correct. She's the most powerful young aged sprite that anyone has come across. And therefore, she is at the Marcius Island home. Right. She is able to turn enemies into fully grown trees. Like when they found her, she was in a point of distress for losing her parents. And the people that were coming to get to her, she turns them into fully rooted trees. This kid has some absolute skill, but you don't know nearly as much about her as you do everyone else. She's just not super profound in the story. One of the most significant moments for Fee mm-hmm. is when they go off on their first adventure. I love their and adventure. And Linus is wearing this little <laughs> explorer <laughs> outfit with the shorts and the shirt and the hat and everything. Khaki and he's like, on khaki, khaki on khaki. And he's like, I hate this. <laughs> in fact, after the adventure, Lucy goes, Good job not dying. (laughs) (laughs) They end up at Zoe's house. Mm -hmm. And to be invited into a Sprite's house is a very, very rare and privileged thing to happen. She has invited the children and Arthur and even Linus into her house for a celebration after the adventure that they've just been on. Linus sees Fee going outside with Zoe, and they're spending time together. Zoe is sort of a mentor for Fee, Mm -hmm. so he goes outside to watch this interaction. He ends up joining them. Fee creates this sunflower. She compares the flower to Linus. She says, it's a bit flimsy, and it'll die if nobody takes care of it. Shady, shady fee. <laughs> well, tree. <laughs> and it's like, oh, wait, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> wait, wait a damn minute. What are you saying? <laughs> but oh, you absolutely know that Linus's mortality was never thought about as much <laughs> until he set foot on this island. Constantly accosted like, with the threat wow, of death. How mortal am I? Right. <laughs> She has great powers. Uh I I wish she had more character time. Yeah. This brings us to one of my very favorite characters. Okay. Theodore the Wyvern. Really? He's one of your favorite characters. He is. Really? He is. Okay. Oh, uh, the young man in the back. Yeah. Why? Why? Okay, so Theodore is a wyvern, and a wyvern is similar to a dragon. Mm -hmm. Um, He doesn't communicate in the way that most people communicate. He has his own chirps. I just love his spirit. He Mm -hmm. is so curious, but extremely loyal. He has his people, and he sticks with his people. You'll often find him on the shoulders of Sal. Yes. He and Sal are like security blankets with one another. Yes, yes. It's like a brotherly connection. It's not like a pet. He is not a pet and Sal is not a dog. Absolutely. They say that wyverns have very complex thoughts and emotions and people just see them as creatures, but no one has ever communicated with them in the way that the children on Marcius and Arthur Mm -hmm. have been able to communicate with Theodore. And it's interesting because the longer Linus is there, the more he realizes, wait, did I just understand what he said? Right? He grows into understanding him. Uh-huh. And it's so true of people who are different from you. If you just give it a little bit of time, mm-hmm. things become more familiar. Like yeah. you can really understand so much more about someone that you thought maybe just didn't even have a conscious thought in their body. Mm-hmm. You grow to understand and care for their personality. I love this little wyvern. He is obsessed with shiny things. Mm -hmm. Just like a dragon, you know, that would have a horde. Horde, yes. He has two hordes. He has a horde up in his nest, and then he has a horde under the living room sofa. Uh And he doesn't ever bring people to his hordes. But towards the end, he shows Linus his his horde. And it's all these buttons that Linus has given him and all these little tokens that remind him of every single person in the family. Mm-hmm. It just shows you the depth of the tenderness of this little... In the beginning, they were also saying that he's so young and so immature that his body is not sized proportionately yet. So he can't even stand up correctly Mm because he's being pulled over by the weight of his wings and his legs are too short. And so he's constantly falling and stumbling and trying to figure out how to exist. This is the only home that a wyvern would have been given a chance. Yeah. I love him. I just love all the kids. They're so very, very individual. And yet they are completely united together. When Linus comes back in the end, they're mad that he's left them. And so they're like, 
court is in session. We're going to convene over here. And so they all huddle up together and occasionally Linus will see one of them <laughs> scowling over at him and words like bury him alive and <laughs> things like that. And so they come up with a list of stipulations. It's like, if you're going to stay, you have to help Talia in the garden every day or let Chauncey do your laundry. He's <laughs> like, no, okay, fine. <laughs> they're so individual, and yet they're such a family that they just oddly fit together. They do. They belong together. Mm-hmm. So this brings us to the headmaster himself, Arthur, Arthur Parnassus. Arthur, ba-da, ba-da, Arthur, ba-da, ba-da. A name on everybody's lips is going to be... Arthur. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that one. Yay, Chicago. So he is described as an extremely tall... Spindly man. Spindly man. He has the patience of a saint and the most giving soul of anyone out there and the most understanding. He is able to run this home of a large number of very odd circumstances and do it with grace and extreme compassion. Literally nobody else could do what he does. Literally no one. And especially not with this number of children. Oh my God. And with every case being so different, I think one of them even mentions it. We're all really different, but we have never once been treated as something different. Right. You kind of get the sense that Arthur knows Mm -hmm. more than he lets on. There's something more going on with him. Right. That you can't quite put your finger on. But there's something that he's not saying. Right. And Linus picks up on this. So in his reports back to Dykeme, he says, I have an astounding little amount of information on Arthur Parnassus. If you want more information on him, I need more information on him. Right. This is not a fair exchange. Mm -hmm. So he receives a file from Dykeme. He keeps getting redacted information. Everything is just very, very minimal. Mm -hmm. But this file, he's going down it and he's checking off things. He's like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And then it gets to magical ability. What? Ta-da! We have reached the plot twist. We have reached the plot twist, and it is a hot one. Arthur is the only known phoenix Phoenix. in existence. In existence, yeah. He was raised on Marcius Island by a very cruel... um, Miss Hannigan on crack. His guardian was horrid. So because the guardian has it out for him he's like well he always had it out for me which meant he left the other kids alone Mm -hmm. but at one point he ends up being locked in the cellar for six months yeah when linus has reported to daikami a couple of times now daikami sends him back a key he has tried to open the cellar before and he has been unsuccessful he realizes that's the only thing this key could be for. He goes straight to the cellar door. Sure enough, it unlocks. And this place has been scorched. Mm-hmm. There is soot on the walls, the floors, the ceiling. And then to his horror, he sees the tally marks on the wall. He stops counting at 60, which he assumes is days. That's where he stops counting. 60 yeah. days. That's two months. They locked him down there for six months. The cruelty is outstanding. And this isn't something that like was a spur of the moment thing. This guardian had this place specifically crafted. Commissioned for Arthur. Right. They know what he's capable of now. And so in order to keep him out of the way and from being a distraction and, you know, standing up for the other children. Exactly. They're going to throw him in the basement. But not only have they put him in a stone basement, they have put iron on the doors. So it is fireproof. And if he does change over into Phoenix and become flame, he burns himself. The heat becomes inescapable. Mm -hmm. He has to stay suppressed for as long as he can. Mm -hmm. It is such a cruel form of torture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's horrendous. It's horrific. When Daikami finds out that he's been kept in a basement, the place gets shut down and he is aged out of the system. He comes back to Daikami later and is like, I want to reclaim my past. Mm -hmm. I want to live in my home, but I want to change everything about what it meant to me. And he does exactly that for Mm -hmm. kids that have nowhere else to go. He makes his absolute worst nightmare into a haven for these children. And I love TJ (laughs) Clune. Me too. Me too. (laughs) 
Arthur is a protector with the patience of an absolute saint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. I adore him. Linus is there sending in reports weekly to Dyke and me, telling them about everything that goes down there. As time goes on, his reports start to, to lean more towards like, oh, okay, well, here's what Dykemy did wrong. And Dykemy has no interest in hearing that. Oh, yeah. Whatsoever. And he's not afraid to say, you made me look unprofessional by going in there without this information. Mm-hmm. Why was I not told? He doesn't really hesitate to question Dykemy. They're not having that. No. They send him a letter back saying, listen, Linus, you need to really check yourself and remember your place. Mm-hmm. We do things very specifically for a reason that you might not be privy to. So we've given you everything we think you need. So anyway, get us more information on Arthur. One of the things that Linus was not informed of was that the townspeople are paid for their silence. Yes, they are. So the town is very separate from the island where the children live. The children have never been in to the town. Yeah, they're completely isolated on the island. Once they arrive, they don't leave. And the townspeople are very aware of their existence. But Dykemy has paid everyone in the town hush money to mm-hmm. stay quiet. Yes. Because, you know, first of all, you don't really want to tell people you have the Antichrist <laughs> and a amorphous blob living on an island not too close. I mean, exactly. think of the resale value. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that Dykemy has done is they have provided the town with a shit ton of see something, say something posters. Mm-hmm. So this town is instilled with a root deep hatred and fear and prejudice of anything different. Anything magical, really. Anything. I mean, it is hardcore ground into these people. Mm-hmm. When Linus suggests to Arthur that the children go into town. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> you can kind of see Linus rethinking it on the mm-hmm. on the ferry ride over there. He's like, <laughs> everyone's talking about death. and <laughs> What was I thinking? Sinking in the ocean. <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, sh- okay, well, this is what we're doing. <laughs> right. They get there and... And they're immediately met with prejudice. The first one we see is Helen, the the mm-hmm. shopkeeper. She's just really kind of taken back. Mm-hmm. And I would be too by the Antichrist and a talking garden gnome. Right. But she warms to them very quickly yes. because she comes to them on a human level and is like, okay, you're a person. I'm a person. Let's get to know each other. She is what we would call an ally in our queer community. So then we experience a attempted... Exorcism. Exorcism at the record store. They go to the record store because when Lucy had his nightmare, he ended up accidentally breaking a lot of his records that he loves. And that's something that he and Linus connect over, mm-hmm. the their shared love of music. And so they go to the record store to restock. One of the record store employees, I think he's a manager. What's his name? Jay something? J-Bone. J-Bone. I kept thinking J-Dog <laughs> and I knew that wasn't right. J-Bone. He's all like... Cool, dude. Righteous little devil man, or whatever. He's like, you know. <laughs> and so Lucy starts to mimic him, and he's like, "Righteous, yeah. What's up, big man?" When he's talking to Linus. <laughs> and so anyway, he mentions a record that he wants, and so Jay Bone was like, "Yeah, I think we might have one in the back, man. Come on." So Lucy goes with him, and because Linus can't leave Talia alone with her new possibly weapons, <laughs> tools, <laughs> Lucy goes back alone with Jay Bone. Suddenly, the door slams, and then you hear this noise. Lucy has, through his magical powers, thrown this other employee across the room, and he's hit the wall, and he's passed out. And Linus is like, what is going on? He says, he tried to exercise me, for God's sake, with a with a cross. And J-Bone was like, oh, he is totally fired. Because <laughs> like, J-Bone, also an ally. So they get the records and they gather Talia's tools and they meet up with everybody else at the ice cream parlor. <laughs> I love it because they walk up and Zoe's like, how's it going? And <laughs> Linus says, well, if you're asking if any felonies were committed, <laughs> we'll discuss that later. This parlor is run by the biggest man cunt. 
I have probably not ever read, but like, he's a real big one. He takes one look at these children and he's like, oh, hell no, I'm not serving you. I see something, I say something, you get out of my store. And at this point, Linus is like, um, I beg your pardon. And then in walks Helen and she's like, listen, buster. (laughs) (laughs) Why aren't you serving them? I'll say something, I'll say something. Make America great again. Very accurate representation. And so she's like, you can take your ass to the back room while I serve them. And so all the kids get their ice cream. And she's like, I used to serve Arthur when he was a kid because this was my first job. And Linus is like, oh. And she's like, his favorite flavor was cherry. And Linus is like, I'll take one. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take a whole gallon of cherry, please. I'll take cherry. (laughs) (laughs) The reaction that they're met with any time they meet somebody in the town is just I think for kids it would be really scary and even mm-hmm. it, while they're in the parlor the confrontation with the ice cream man sends Sal to shifting yeah and so he spends the rest of that little exchange shivering in the arms of Fee <laughs> 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 I know it says in the very beginning too that like mothers were hiding their children as they were just driving by. Oh, yeah. At one point, Talia is looking out the window of the record store, and she's waving at a little girl. The little girl's waving back and smiling, yeah. and then the mom runs over, and she's like, you stay away from my daughter. Karen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the entire island has a very 2016 vibe. <laughs> Well, it's sort of like a, we don't like what we don't understand. In fact, it scares us and these children are mysterious at least. Very much so. Very Mm -hmm. angry mob. And it actually- Where's your pitchforks? It turns into an angry mob. After children have returned to the island, it has festered that these children dared come here. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. They're children. Grow the fuck up. Please. I'm sorry. There's a commotion going on. Arthur and Linus find out about it. And Mm -hmm. Zoe takes the children to her house in the woods and sends Arthur and Linus out to figure out what is going on. It turns out these people had planned to come to the island. I mean, and and who knows what would have happened. Right? Exactly. Arthur and Linus arrive on shore to an angry mob Uh and they're literally going what was the end game here right were you honestly coming to murder children and everyone in the crowd is kind of like well uh we see something we say something you make us uncomfortable yeah small-minded pricks in the middle of this angry mob here comes helen who actually i don't know that we mentioned this earlier she's not only the hardware store attendant she's She's the the mayor mayor. and she was like um y'all need to calm y'all's titties on this this is absolutely ridiculous and unacceptable she mom talked to that crowd oh yeah she did she sent them all to their room. <laughs> They're all grounded. <laughs> she becomes the most impressive ally, and I love her character. She stands up to this angry mob and basically shames them mm-hmm. into understanding that they haven't thought anything through. And what the hell were they going to do? Murder kids? What was the plan here? Between Helen and Arthur and Linus, the mob is sedated Mm -hmm. and sent back on their way. But it has become apparent to Linus that something has to change. This town and the house cannot live so separately Mm -hmm. if these children are going to have any kind of a hope. Any future, yeah. Right? So he goes back and he writes his final report and he leaves. He leaves. He leaves the island like a... Stupid, stupid, stupid man. He's playing it professional and being very blindness, being realistic. And yeah. Why would you want to go home to that empty house with that bitchy ass neighbor? Like, oh, you didn't die, did you? <laughs> you missed out. My gay nephew's got a boyfriend now. <laughs> Between that you know, and the, it's like, oh just my God. a moment. <laughs> just a moment at the office like why would you return Gunther Gunther yeah. at the office so he goes back and he presents his report to extremely upper management mm-hmm. and the report essentially says fuck you fuck your organization leave them the hell alone actually what the report <laughs> says is it's my recommendation that this place remain open thank you very much bye <laughs> what we find out is that one of the 
managers in extremely upper management uh-huh. played Arthur Parnassus. Pretty hardcore. He was the former caseworker. He has names for all of the upper management, Linus does. One of them is Jowls. One of them is something else. And uh, this guy is handsome. handsome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Handsome played his cards well and got to know Arthur in a personal way. Mm-hmm. And that is how Dykeme is in possession of the key to the dungeon. Mm-hmm. It seems that this particular upper management has it out for Arthur mm-hmm. because this is the holy grail of cases. It's sort of an experiment, really, right. to see if this is something that can exist. When Linus returns with his recommendation that everything remain the same, they don't like that. They send him out and we don't hear anything on the final assessment of the case for, I think, a week. Yeah, but it's so great, though, because he doesn't walk in there with guns blazing or anything like that. But he thinks back to these precious children and this man that he's met and this courage wells up in him and this strength that he didn't know he had. It's like that moment in the third act of a movie where the main shy character finally finds some gumption, Mm -hmm. stands up and then walks out of the room. He even recites a little bit of Sal's poem. He does. He just goes back to life as normal, but he's taking less shit. He puts up a personal item on his desk, a photo of him and all of the children Mm -hmm. and Arthur and Zoe. And he starts stealing case files, taking them home so that he can follow up Mm -hmm. with these places to really see that things are where they should be. And has Zykami been fucking with these other places? Mm -hmm. You know, have I missed something here? Yeah. And this is all because of Arthur. After he learns a little bit more about Arthur's story and everything that Arthur was put through under the name of Mm Zykami, he's like, okay, well, I obviously wasn't doing my upright best. And you can't be alone in this. You can't have been the only one. And he starts to question whether or not he was actually a very good caseworker. Because, you know, he would go and he would make his assessment, but then he would not follow up. You know, it was on to the next one. So Mm -hmm. he starts to go and steal the files because he's going to start checking in Mm -hmm. on these remaining children. Yeah. Up to this point, he has lived and breathed Dykemy's rules and regulations. And they start to finally go out the window for him. They don't have the heart that is needed Mm -hmm. for the caseworkers. It's just rules and regulations. Right. And his has grown Mm-hmm. since meeting the children and meeting Arthur. Little Grinch heart. Yeah. Little Grinch heart. Been <laughs> unfrozen. The final recommendation of Dykeme is that the house remain open. What? Yay! And that Arthur Parnassus remain permanently uh-huh. the headmaster of the house. Yes. Upon this news, Linus says, fuck y'all. Peace. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> so he arrives back at the island And like we said earlier, the children have a little meeting to determine Uh whether or not Linus is allowed to remain on the island. They huddle up. They huddle. (laughs) They all come up with their own stipulations. And in the end, he is welcomed back. And then he and Arthur fall in love. (laughs) And this is one of the things that I love about this book. Like you always understand that there's a romantic tension almost between the two of them. There is an attraction there. But it's never the main point of the story. uh -uh. It's a very quiet subplot. Yes. It's so fucking precious. (laughs) I love it. I love love it it. all. And together they become a family. At at one point, they had mentioned that an orphanage is the wrong nomenclature for this Mm -hmm. situation. Because no one ever adopts magical youth. It's a home. Right. And they start to think about marriage and adoption and <laughs> what's funny is like Linus and Arthur are just talking about it in passing well of course Lucy eavesdrops on them and he goes downstairs and he's like Mr. Baker's marrying Arthur and he's gonna adopt us we're all gonna be their kids <laughs> and they're like shit way to be subtle <laughs> I just love the way that it closes at the end they're brought a case and it's uh-huh A Yeti. A Yeti boy with the bluest eyes. So they decide to take what was once a horrible location Uh of pain. They're converting Arthur's dungeon into a cold room for a Yeti. What I love is that they don't just automatically jump on it. They say, let's ask the family. Yes. I just, I mean, Mm -hmm. come on. I know. (laughs) All right. So... We have finished one of our very, very, very favorite books. Joe, how do you rate House in the Cerulean Sea? Oh, my goodness. I think 
I'm going to give it five shovels. Oh, you bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. (laughs) I'm going to give it five copper buttons. Oh, five copper buttons. I love it. There's a quote on the cover of the book that says, nearly perfect. Uh Uh-huh. Accurate. I, I agree. I agree. It's nearly perfect. It's wonderful. Joe? Yeah, Becky? We've done it. Oh my God, we did it. Can you believe we made a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I mean, I'm not known for following through on things. Oh, and I'm terrible at that. But here we are. We did it. Episode 10 of our first season of A Gay Abide in a Book. I love it. I'm so proud of us. I'm so proud of this. And I can't wait to see what happens with it in the future. I know. Me too. We did it. We're done. We're done. Well, we're done with the season anyway. We're done with the season. I'm not done with you, Becky. Nope. (laughs) You're not getting rid of me. So things may change a little bit, but we completely plan on a second season please we are will remain on social media we'll try to be as active as we can we are on twitter we are on instagram we are on tiktok all at agaya buy a book and you can email us at gmail at agaya buy a book at gmail.com and then our anchor website anchor.fm forward slash agaya buy in a book we want your suggestions for books that we can cover in the future I'm so excited. I will say for 100% sure, we will be discussing TJ Klune's new book at some point next season. He has two that we will be addressing next season. One of them is the sequel to The Extraordinaries Mm -hmm. called Flashfire. And then his new standalone is called Under the Whispering Door. So if you want to go ahead and grab those, we will absolutely be addressing those at some point next season. It is a great time to do that because Under the Whispering Door was released not very long ago. So it's new. I've read it. It's very powerful. So you don't want to miss it. We're so excited that you all have come on this journey with us. We can't believe you're here. We're so thankful. I know. I can't believe that we're here half the time. <laughs> We are so grateful that you all have given us hours and hours of your time and motivated to keep this going for you all. We don't have a set date yet for a release of season two, so please keep your alert button activated on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you do. Make sure that you're alerted when we have new episodes coming out. Absolutely, and keep your eye on our social media as well, because we will be making announcements. We might even have a couple of surprises, Possibly. Uh, even before the next season, so right? you we never may. know what might happen. Ben, wink, wink, face. <laughs> you know us. We can't stay away from each other long uh, yeah, enough to absolutely. like go a full season break. Joe, thank you for this experience. It's been and so wonderful. Thank you. With equal measure, I just am so glad that uh, I met you and that we're friends and we like the same books most of the time. And uh, this has just been a blast to go on this journey with you. I've had such a good time. All right, everyone. Here's our final sign off of season one here we go oh no (laughs) it's been wonderful thank you everyone thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts bye gay okay abide the book okay abide the book Oh, <laughs> uh, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's totally fine, fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's not a problem. <laughs>